Scripture reference today is John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30. Therefore, there arose discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may you work in us what we have just heard. May Christ increase. May we decrease. And may it result in our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the third Sunday of Advent. And on the third Sunday of Advent, we attempt to light the candle of joy, which has been extinguished once this morning, but is now lit again. We shall see. Uh, Joy to the world, we have sung. For the Lord has come. Joy has dawned, we've declared. Joy, joy, joy. We're talking about joy. We're singing about joy. We've sung about joy a lot. But what is joy? Before defining it, I'll give you a quote and a personal example of joy. My freshman year of college, driving back to campus from church with a carload of other University Mobile students, the pretty sophomore next to me asked me if I've ever read Augustine. I hadn't really, but instead of saying that, I said this, how sweet it was all at once for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared so much to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. And it was like, it was like fishing rod, throwing it out. It, it was that girl over there, by the way, Re- reeling her in. Uh, that was the only Augustine quote I knew by heart. Uh, a quote about God being the source of our joy. It pays in life, folks, to know something about joy. Uh, It's for your joy to know something about joy. Because you never know when and how that knowledge might shape the rest of your life. You're in the right place this morning because it pays to know personally and think deeply about joy. And that's what we're going to do. Think about joy. What is it? What exactly is joy? You might perhaps struggle to define it, but my life and your life contain many examples of it. The moment when you first look into the face of your newborn child, that is a moment of parental joy. The moment when, as a child, you wake up thinking it's a school day and suddenly remember it's Saturday. That's an example of childhood joy. 
Or in childhood, you remember that magical moment when you come out on Christmas morning and catch the first glimpse of the Christmas tree and the stacks of presents around it. Or as a child waking up to an unexpected snowfall. No school today. It's a day of playing in the snow. It's a moment of joy. Or as an adult, finally receiving that long-expected promotion at work. Or at any point in life, you round a corner and are surprised by a gorgeous rainbow or a breathtaking sunset. Or, sports fans, your team wins the big game on the last play, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, and you dance around the room, right? That's a moment of joy. Your life is filled with many examples of joy, but what is the essence of joy? What is the essence shared by all those examples? We can say this much about joy's essence, at least. Joy is essentially a response, It is a response. What ties all those examples together is that they are responses. Responses to things that are good, to things that are beautiful, to things that are true. Joy is our heart's natural response to good news, good tidings of great joy. Joy is our natural heart's response to stunningly beautiful realities that we encounter. And if you're wondering why Christians make such a big deal about joy... Why we sing so much about joy, especially compared to others, it's because our hearts are responding to better and more beautiful realities than others have to respond to. Our joy is greater because the truths we regularly encounter are greater. Our joy is abundant because we're responding to the abundance of beautiful realities we find in the Bible. The Bible talks about joy. More than any other book I know, the Bible talks about joy. And it's because the Bible is revealing more good and beautiful things than any other book that anyone knows. We saw just one of those good and beautiful things last week, last Sunday, when we looked at the nativity. In Jesus' nativity, we find the most beautiful picture of unity, of peace imaginable. Here you have angels and animals. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have riches and poverty. You have the most educated and the least educated. You have the glorious light of heaven and the dirty realities of earth. All coming together around a king born to save us. God in flesh come to rescue us. The very light of God stepping into our present darkness. These are tidings of great joy because they are tidings of great realities. They are tidings of gloriously beautiful things. The Christian's joy ought to be great because we are responding to great news of great things. Great news of great things that the world doesn't know or in knowing doesn't acknowledge to be true. Because it's one thing to see a nativity scene and think it's beautiful. There might be a glimmer of joy in that. But it's another thing to see a nativity scene and be struck. Not only is it beautiful, but it is true. 
It really happened. Not only is it a beautiful scene, but it is a historical scene. It's a scene that happened in real history. God really did plan for his son to be born in a stable and laid in a manger. And he did that for me and for you. That's when we are pierced with joy, when we don't just see the Christmas story as beautiful, but we also see it as being beautifully true. J.R.R. Tolkien knew a thing or two about beauty and joy, and he observed this. He said, there is a joy that pierces so deeply, it brings tears. Do you know that kind of joy? There is a joy that pierces the heart so deeply, it brings tears to the eyes. Joy is the piercing response of the heart to what is good and beautiful and true. And if it seems like Christians talk about joy more than others, it's because we've got more good and beautiful and true things to talk about than others do. Christianity, by the sheer bulk of the truth it gives us, makes joy something gigantic. If you could keep in the forefront of your mind all the things the Bible tells us that are true about reality, then joy would be something gigantic for you. And sorrow would be something special and small. The biggest barrier to your joy, therefore, is this. We are monumental forgetters. It's a result of sin and the fall that our minds do not hold on to truth and our hearts do not respond to truth like we should. But the, but the good news is that there is joy to be found not just in the discovery, but also in the rediscovery of truth. Like rediscovering that old song you love so much, but then forgot about for years and years. Unexpectedly, you hear that song again, and all the feelings come flooding back. I cannot tell you how many times I've forgotten some joy-producing truth in the Bible, and then unexpectedly, I encounter it again. I come across it again. Look, here's a truth you almost forgot, KJ. Wow, isn't it so good that this thing is true? And it was no less true and no less good all the time I forgot about it. All the time it was out of sight, out of mind, it was still joyfully and gloriously true. This is a big reason why Christians are called to be lifelong disciples, to be lifelong learners. Our joy depends upon it. We're called to get into the scripture, not so much to increase our head knowledge as to increase our heart's joy. We are called not to neglect our gathering together for worship and fellowship and hearing God's word because it's here that we are reminded of great truths to which our hearts are to respond to with great joy. The Apostle Paul says to the church that he is a worker with you for your joy. That's the role of a pastor as well. I am a worker with you for your joy. In the personal interactions we have, in the public preaching of the word I get to do Sunday by Sunday, in both the personal and the public, 
My work is to spark and rekindle your joy in Jesus. My task is to recapture your heart week by week with the truths you already know. But so very often, your heart doesn't act like you know them. You often respond to the week's difficulties and bad news like you've forgotten all this good truth about Jesus. My job in every sermon is to try to capture your imagination once again with truths you already know so that your heart's response can be different the next time you're tempted to despair or to be frustrated or to be bitter. So that joy is something that becomes so big in our lives, the beautiful realities are just so great in us that they've captured too much of our hearts to give room to malice or anger any longer. Those things are pushed out by a superior joy in Jesus. As your pastor, I'm a worker with you to rekindle the fire of your joy and to extinguish your smoldering flame of anxiety and pride and fear. Even in the committee and budget meetings, I'm to be a worker with you for your joy, calling you to humility when you get your way and to contentment when you don't. And I do it largely by pointing us to great realities, to greater realities, to the great realities we encounter in Jesus and in his word. So this morning, we're going to look at God's word and see how joy is our proper response to Jesus. And we're going to see that response modeled for us in the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's life pretty much began with a response of joy to Jesus. Do you remember when? You remember this? John had a response of joy to Jesus while he was still in the womb. Luke records this amazing encounter between John the Baptist's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary. Luke reports that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. For joy. Luke, who records this, and by extension God, who inspired this, wants us to know this story, this prenatal story of John and Jesus. Not only do we get a divinely inspired perspective here on personhood, the unborn Jesus, the unborn John the Baptist are both fully persons while in utero. They are capable of being filled with the Spirit and of responding with joy. It's a beautiful and significant picture for us that joy was felt by John the Baptist long before he, as an infant, felt either pain or hunger. Before them both, he felt joy. In John chapter 3, an adult John the Baptist again experiences joy in response to Jesus. And his response reveals to us more things about joy. This morning, we're going to see three more things. Joy is a response, yes, but three more things John reveals to us about joy. And the first is this. 
Joy is a gift. Joy is a gift. Look at verses 25 through 27. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, Jesus, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testify, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Joy is a gift. A man can receive nothing unless it comes from above, from God. Joy is a gift because everything is a gift. Every good and perfect gift, including joy, comes down from a father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the fountainhead of every good thing. It all flows from him to us. Every good thing flows from God just like a stream flows from its source. This is true whether we acknowledge it or not. It's true for the believer and for the unbeliever, for the Christian and for the atheist. Everyone's experiences of joy come in response to a never-ceasing stream of God's good gifts, of God's goodness toward us. Jesus said that God causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God gives everyone sunny days and refreshing rain and many more joys beside. This is part of God's witness to an unbelieving world. When atheists encounter joy, they're meant to feel the pull that there is something here. There's something more here, something that their atheism cannot account for. There are deep yearnings here that their naturalism cannot explain. Our joy in response to a beautiful work of art or the sense of transcendence we experience when we hear a certain piece of music are there to show us that we are not the product of blind forces. We are not the result of the countless chance collision of atoms. We are made for something more. We were designed to experience joy. That's why joy feels like a gift. Don't you feel that way? Don't you feel like joy is a gift? Our experience of joy feels like a gift because it is. It's not an evolutionary accident. It is an intentional gift to us. And so the gift of joy ought to point us to something. If there is a stream, there's also a source. If there is a soul-stirring work of art, there is also an artist. If there is a gift, there is also a giver. The existence of joy ought to point us to the existence of God. The gift ought to point us to the giver. We ought to know that joy is a gift because it's joy-killing whenever we deny it. The surest way to kill your joy is not to see it as a gift. Just think about it. Suppose I present my atheist friend with a beautiful framed reprint 
of Vincent van Gogh's A Starry Night. There it is. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful painting, and as he looks at it, he feels transported to Provence in France and is enraptured by the scene. But the surest way to kill that joy is for my atheist friend to begin to analyze his feelings and responses. He asks himself in the midst of his enjoyment, I wonder what brain chemistry causes me to feel this way. I wonder how did this feeling help my evolutionary ancestors survive and thereby pass on this ability to me. Whatever joy he had, when he starts doing that, it's gone. Because the surest way to kill a pleasure is to start analyzing it. The next surest way to kill a joy is by refusing to see it as a gift. Suppose my atheist friend receiving the gift gladly at first, but then starts to grow suspicious. Why would KJ give me something like this? What does he want from me? What am I now obliged to give him in return? When a gift no longer is considered a gift, it doesn't spark joy when you see it. It now sparks feelings of suspicion and doubt and anxiety. Our joy in anything won't be full unless we see that thing for the gift that it really is. Our joy won't be full until we acknowledge the goodness of the giver. I remember once walking through the Yorkshire Dales with a friend who was an atheist. Uh, Swelldale. If you get the chance to go anywhere in the world, go to Swelldale. It's, it's like the Shire. Beautiful hills. It's, it's lovely. Go to Muker, Thwaites, Keld. Crackpot Hall is such a place. <laughs> go, go there. Walk there. My friend was enjoying the lovely day and scenery. I was enjoying it. And our common experience of joy opened the door for a conversation. Jono, I said. That was his name. Jono. I can tell you're enjoying all this, but don't you think you'd enjoy this scene even more if you saw it all as a gift? Can you imagine how your joy would be even greater if you saw every green hill and every waterfall and every ray of sunshine as God's intentional gift to you? Wouldn't that multiply your joy if you saw every singing bird and beautiful wildflower as intentionally placed there by God for your delight? Wouldn't that multiply your joy if you believed it? It would. It would. When we see everything as a gift, including joy itself, our joy in everything is increased. But deny the gift and you diminish the joy. If not, outright kill it. That's the first truth we learn from John about joy. It's a gift. Here's the second truth. Joy is found in focusing on another. Joy is found in focusing on another. Look at verse 28 and 29. John says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
John the Baptist finds his joy made full as he does the, as he focuses not on himself, but on another. In one sense, we should have all seen this coming. Experience teaches us that joy doesn't come from looking within. Joy comes as a response to things without, by looking to another outside of ourselves. Sometimes the other is a landscape or a sunset or a painting or a bridal gown. All these things are external points of focus that spark joy inside us to varying degrees. For the person who makes those other things the focus, however, there is always a falling short in the end of their expectations. There's never the fullness of joy that John the Baptist talks about here. Because neither the landscape, nor the sunset, nor the painting, nor the dress are meant to be the ultimate point of focus for our joy. They may provide a moment's joy, but it's not the lasting thing you were looking for. Your heart wasn't made to find continual joy in this thing. Your heart was made for another. You were designed to find your full joy in heaven's bridegroom and in no one else. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is ever restless until it finds its rest in you. That's true. Have you felt it? Our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in you. If you want this joy to be yours and to be full, you have to find the proper object to focus on. You have to focus on another, on the only one great enough to make your joy full forever. Jesus, the joyful bridegroom, the Savior who has come to us born and laid in a manger so that your joy might be in him and your joy might be made full. Jesus' coming has made it where everything else doesn't have to be perfect now for your joy to be full. All your days don't have to be sunny. All your paths don't have to be straight. You don't have to slay the dragon and get the girl yourself because he already has. He's already done it, and he's done it for you. He's overcome the dragon. Jesus has rescued his bride, so you don't have to. You have the joy of being the friend who is invited to the party. Your joy is full because you hear his voice. Your friend who was dead is now alive. The bridegroom who willingly went into the grave for his bride has returned to life for you. This is his party. This is his victory celebration, his banquet, not yours. John says Jesus is the proper center of the party, not me. Let me tell you something. Something that may save your Christmas and may save your soul too. At Christmas time, there's a temptation to go off in a million different directions. But if you try to find your joy in anything else this Christmas besides Jesus, it will ultimately fail you. If you try to find your joy in the gifts, you'll ultimately be disappointed. 
You try to find your joy, the joy of Christmas, in the cozy time with family, you'll ultimately be let down. If you try to fuel your joy with the lights and tinsel, with the decorations and shopping, with the seasonal treats and family meals, with Christmas cards and all the trappings of Christmas, you will miss the fullness of joy, which can only be found by putting Christ at the center. But when you make Jesus the focus of your joy, all the lights, all the tinsel, the trees, the giving of gifts, the meals with family will mean more to you. You will enjoy all of them more because your joy is ultimately focused in Jesus, not in those things. Disconnected from Jesus as the fountainhead, all your joys become like little cut-off puddles that quickly grow stagnant. But connected to Jesus, every good thing flows downstream from him, and there is no end to the joy. Literally, joy goes on forever. Because the fountain of our joy is an infinite person, an eternity of ever-escalating joy lies ahead of us. Because there is always more of him to know and love and enjoy. This is what you were created for, whether you realize it or not. You were made to drink from this fountain. You were designed to only find the fullness of joy in one place in one other person, in a divine person who came to you when you could not go to him. At the right time, while we were helpless, the fountain became flesh. The source of our joy became a person we could touch who pursued us. He came teaching us this, that joy is found in focusing on another and joy is found in forgetting oneself. It's our third and final point. Joy is found in forgetting oneself. Look at verse 30. John the Baptist put it this way. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. What John says here could be written large over our hearts, over the hearts of every disciple of Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. I can easily think that in order to be happy, I've got to assert myself. Joy is out there, and I must increase in order to take it, to take hold of it by force. If joy exists at all in an evolutionary mindset, it is only found in this, that might makes right. The strong take what they want, and the weak suffer what they must. I must increase my power, my wealth, and my possessions if I'm to maximize my joy and happiness in this life. That may be the modern way of thinking, but it is not the biblical way of thinking. It's also not the way of experience. Ask yourself this. How does it feel that one time a year, when everyone in the room is standing around you singing happy birthday to you. How does that moment feel? It's, it's probably the most uncomfortable time of the year, isn't it? 
Uh, it's uncomfortable when everyone around you is singing happy birthday and they're all looking at you, the only person not singing. You're the focus of all the attention, and boy, isn't it awkward. It's hard to find joy in that moment because you are more awkwardly aware of yourself in that moment than you normally are. <laughs> joy is found in the opposite. Joy is found in unconsciously forgetting yourself. Joy is found feeling yourself to grow smaller, not larger. I think I've shared with you before the, this story. I, was, so I spent two summers in Ukraine, uh, hot summers. And one of those summers, uh, we, after the camps we were doing, we went to this pond out in the middle of nowhere and at night for a swim. And I've never been to a place where there, were no, there was no light pollution anywhere. <laughs> but out in the middle of this pond, I remember being up to the neck, looking up at the sky, and seeing stars like I had never seen stars before. And in that moment, I felt joy. And it was the joy of being small. Feeling God, his handiwork is big. I, myself, am very, very small. And that was a moment not of, of dread and despair, but a moment of joy. Being caught up in something much bigger than myself. Joy is found in moments of forgetting ourselves. It's found in feeling ourselves to be less and God to be more. Jonathan Edwards, who's still considered today to be one of the greatest philosophical minds that America's ever produced, perhaps the greatest, Edwards described his conversion this way. He said upon reading the words of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, these words, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Edward said, as I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. Edwards was converted by the reality that John describes here. Our joy and happiness lies not in inflating our sense of self, but in deflating it. It becomes, in becoming wrapped up in something greater than ourselves. You know this when you see a great work of art. Joy is found in forgetting yourself for a moment. It's found in being wrapped up in something that's beautiful. I've shared with you before how I, how I remember the first time I saw John Martin's The Great Day of His Wrath. It was just a painting in a textbook, but an audible wow escaped my lips before I knew what was happening. I completely forgot about myself in that moment, being caught up in something else. You know what I'm talking about. You experience it every time you go see a good movie in the theaters. What's the most annoying thing that can happen in a theater? The people behind you are talking. The people in front of you are repeatedly getting up. Why is that so frustrating? Because part of the joy of the movies is found in forgetting yourself. It's found in getting wrapped up in a story. 
And every phone call that person takes makes you remember that there are inconsiderate people in the real world around you. You can't lose yourself in a film because your anger is growing in that moment. You wish you could just forget about everything else and enjoy it. You know this every time you see a good film in the theater. You know this every time you read a good book. What's the last thing you want to happen when you're at the climax of a good book? Isn't it to be interrupted? Mom, what's for dinner? There's a knock at the door. Dad, my brother locked me in the closet again. Well, he didn't do it for long enough. I wish someone would lock me in a closet. I could finish this book. We all know this to be true. The moments we most want to last are the moments we most forget ourselves. We know it through good books and good movies that joy finds us in the moments when we manage to forget ourselves. When our life gets caught up in a story that seems grander than our own. For most every book and movie, this is labeled as escapism. We're escaping the realities of the real world and being absorbed in in the realities of a fake world. A lot of books will do that for you, but the Bible isn't one of them. The Bible's form of escapism is less akin to a man escaping from reality and more akin of a man escaping to reality. Escapism is good if you're escaping from a prison. And that's what the Bible is calling us to do. If you're bound by your false understandings of the world and what will make you happy, the Bible calls you to escape and says, here is what's true. Here is what will set you free. Freedom isn't found in my growing greater. and It's found in me becoming less full of myself. Joy isn't found in increasing my part in life's play but in getting wrapped up in the part another has played. Joy isn't found in me toasting my own performance, but is found in my toasting heaven's hero and his performance. Joy is found in me rejoicing with the bridegroom who is at the center of the party. I don't have to be the center of attention. I don't have to be the life of the party. And that is meant for my joy that I am not. Seeing this unlocks for us the joy of Christmas and the joy that is at the center of all of life. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, I can now start enjoying things that are not about me. Not thinking more of myself as in modern cultures or thinking less of myself as in traditional cultures, but simply thinking of myself less. Did you get that? There it is. This is the key to joy. It's not thinking more of myself, building up my self-esteem. It's also not thinking less of myself. Woe is me. Look how rubbish I am. The key to joy is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. John points the way here. He must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the way to the joy that Christians keep singing about. 
joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Father, as we hear your word now and respond to it, give us joy in our response. May we take our eyes off ourselves. May we forget ourselves and focus our our eyes on what is good and beautiful and true, the great realities that we find in Christ and his gospel. Lord, we may have came in here this morning like John the Baptist in prison. (laughs) Is this really the one? Is this really the Christ, or should we wait for another? May our eyes look at him and see what he has done. He has healed the lame. He has opened blind eyes. He has raised the dead. He has died and come back to life for us. May we see all this gloriously beautiful truth, and may our hearts respond appropriately. May our hearts respond with fresh joy this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.